She's a business mogul. Number one. And wellness expert. How can I help? And now Chantel Ray and her amazing guests are here to guide you on your wellness journey. Time to level up. Welcome to the Waste Away Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode, and I'm so excited. We have Dr. Mark Scott from the Total Health Center in Virginia Beach, but he sees people all over the country, and he used to be a chiropractor, and he still is. When I say he used to, he still is, but he's also doing a ton in the functional medicine space, and he helps people with thyroid conditions, digestive and bowel issues, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, weight loss, and so much more. So we're so excited to have you. Welcome, Dr. Mark Scott. Thanks for having me. It's always good to be here with you. We've done a couple of these in the past, and I've always enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I want to talk about today, it's funny because a friend of mine said to me, she said, how how are you doing? And I went was going into the gym, actually, and it was my trainer. And she's like, how are you doing today? I said, well, I kind of feel like my health feels like the stock market. I just have like lots of highs and lots of lows. So I want you to talk about a little bit about rheumatology and joint pain, because I'm hearing so many of my friends, the one thing I'm hearing over and over again, I guess all my friends are getting older now, and they are feeling joint pain more than ever. And people are coming up with autoimmune issues like never before. I have a good friend of mine. He actually, he went and got all of his lab work done. He literally, his hips were were not even moving. He couldn't even hardly get out of bed. He ended up having to go to Johns Hopkins and they found out he had an autoimmune disease that, you know, is very rare and they diagnosed him with that. But the, the lab work didn't show anything. So what would you say for someone who there maybe their lab work is not showing anything and they're like, but I feel miserable. Well, we have to realize that, you know, conventional care is really about a diagnosis. So they're looking for a named disease. So if you have a disease that hasn't been named yet, then then they're not going to find it. Um, so again, they're looking for some kind of pathology that, that they have a record of that they can treat with some type of medication. So with autoimmune diseases and generally, uh, the latest trend in conventional care is immune system suppressing medications. So you see a lot of these ads on TV and, you know, they clear up your psoriasis and whatever, but these are, a lot of these are immune suppressants, which in autoimmune diseases, when your immune system is going haywire and is attacking your own tissues. So when you suppress the immune system, the immune system no longer attacks the tissues, but you can't go out to suppress the immune system. So it's really not getting to the root cause of the problem. And that's, that's where functional medicine shines because with a functional approach, the goal is to get, is to figure out why, you know, so your conventional doctor just wants to know what it is. So you go to your doctor and say, I have this pain and they're going to do testing and labs and say, okay, you've got, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and what's the treatment? Well, you know, or what causes it? Well, no one really knows, you know, we don't know what causes it, you know, genetics, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, but the treatment is this Humira or whatever the, the medication is that suppresses the immune system. With a functional approach, you know, I see lots of autoimmune cases, but I really don't care that much what the diagnosis is, which is kind of 
odd for people to hear because they feel like that's so important. Like I want someone that treats rheumatoid. I want someone that treats Hashimoto's. I want someone that treats grades. Um, but that's just not how the body works. So, you know, when your immune system starts to go haywire, it's going to attack the weakest link in your system. So when you're, if your weak link is your thyroid, then you develop Hashimoto's or Graves. If it's your joints, then you might develop rheumatoid arthritis. If it's the coming of your nerves, then you end up with MS, but they're all variations of the same immune system dysfunction. And that's why a lot of times people you know, doctors will say, you know, if you have one autoimmune disease, you're a higher risk of developing another autoimmune disease because of that. And, and a lot of times patients will come in and say, oh, well, you know, you can't help me because I've had my thyroid removed. You know, one of the treatments for grains is to remove the thyroid. And they say, oh, well, but that does, but that stops the thyroid from being hyperactive, but your immune system is still going haywire. And that needs to be figured out. So that's, that's where functional medicine shines. And that's, you know, what we try to do is look to, okay, what is, what can be caused the immune system to go haywire? And there's lots of different things that can do that. So as far as diet for the autoimmune system, I've heard of the auto, autoimmune protocol, which is called AIP, which is basically kind of a paleo diet, but a lot more strict mm-hmm. where they say, okay, you are not going to eat any grains. You're not eating any beans. You're not eating any nuts or seeds or even nightshade vegetables. That means like no tomatoes, no potatoes, um, and dairy are completely avoided. And they say that that combination, and even they say alcohol and coffee as well, uh, and obviously processed sugars and stuff like that, but that people literally feel like a whole new person. Like, yes, they might still have this autoimmune disease, but that that autoimmune protocol diet, they at least can kind of get out of bed. They're able to do things. Have you seen the same thing as like, is that the best diet for autoimmune um, that you just have to be real strict with it? Or what is your opinion on that? That's a that's a great, great place to jump in because Really what it comes down to, one of the main um, drivers of immune system dysfunction is gut dysbiosis or, you know, imbalance in the gut bacteria, um, a leaky gut, you know, something going on with, with your intestines. So the autoimmune protocol is a way to avoid all the possible things that could be irritating your intestine. So the way I describe it to my patients is first we'll test them to see if they have you know, damage to the intestinal lining, if they have gut dysbiosis, if they have some of these things going on. So what are the tests, before you move on from that, yeah, what yeah. are the tests that you you do to see if somebody has theirs? Yeah, so um, typically what I'll do is I'll do initial workup, and that initial workup will kind of guide me to what areas of the body we might need to look at first. But if, if, we're, if we're looking at the gut and we are having indications that there may be you know, parasites or pathogens or some other gut dysbiosis. There's a stool microbial profile that I look at that um, is going to look at everything from your good bacteria to your bad bacteria, the balances of the good bacteria, the balances of the bad bacteria, molds, fungus, yeast, parasites. See if any of that stuff is contributing because just a parasite alone could be a chronic immune system stress that you could have for years and not even know that it's going on. 
Um, so some of these hidden uh, infections, so whether it's even something like Lyme's disease or you know some other um, virus that's kind of uh, under the under the surface, it's constantly stressed out the immune system. But and then then another common test I'll do is looking at different food sensitivities. But one of the tests I I like is more looking at the in, the mucosa of the intestinal lining, not the blood. So a lot of, you know, you can go online and do food sensitivity testing. And in my opinion, those are not that accurate for multiple reasons. A, you know, the, the lab you use, the, there's lots of labs out there. Some are better than others and, you know, how sensitive they are. But even more importantly, just looking at the blood, if you say you have a leaky gut or some damage to the intestinal lining, there's undigested particles getting into the bloodstream and that's going to show up on the test. But they're not really the... That's not really the cause of your problem. That's just a side effect of the leaky gut. So what I found is that usually the things that are the, that are the foundations or the or the start of the gut problem, which then starts the other food sensitivities, are found in the intestinal mucosa. So we're looking at the antibodies in the intestinal mucosa, and that's going to give us a little better information as far as you know what started this whole thing. If we get those things fixed, then a lot of times we can reintroduce a lot of these other foods. So with the autoimmune protocol, most of my patients, let's say 90, 100%, don't have to be on the autoimmune protocol forever. So we use that for a short period of time to get the gut healed. And once it's healed, they will reintroduce a lot of those things. Um, but there are, but we will identify what are the main contributors that you need to avoid for life or else this will come back. So, so that's how I look at the autoimmune protocol diet. Mm. Yeah. So as far as, well, let me read this question. Um, and this is from Cindy. It says, I try to use everything with a natural route of things. My friend has rheumatoid arthritis and she has a doctor giving her medicine. And I looked it up and it says it's used for parasites. She's starting to take hydroxychloroquine. And I looked it up and it is a drug used to help with parasites. I believe I have parasites as well. And I'm trying to figure out, would this be good for my rheumatoid issues? And this is where, you know, the internet can be so confusing for people because there's so many, and you know, all of these things have a place. So yes, if you have a parasite, then you might need a parasite cleanse. And that parasite could be contributing to your autoimmune disease, but you, but you may not have a parasite, you know, and that's where the testing really kind of helps narrow things down. So I have a, num a number of autoimmune patients and people with IBS and all kinds of digestive issues, and they don't have any parasite. And then sometimes you'll have people that they don't have any real gastrointestinal disturbance that they're aware of. They feel fine symptomatically, but when you, when you test them, you find they have it. Um, so I think that's where sometimes it's really understanding the testing and then not also navigating all the different tests that are out there can be very confusing as well. Um, Do you think why, you know, some just... of the parasite tests that they don't, that they don't find the parasites, even though the person might actually have parasites? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I always tell the story to my patients where I, when I first got into this, um, I started testing people. I, I found this patient had H. pylori which is a parasite that gets into the stomach 
and then it burrows into the stomach lining, and then it starts to secrete a mucus, which neutralizes stomach acid. And this prevents you from digesting fats and proteins and uh, key minerals and vitamins, and it does this, it keeps your gallbladder from being signals. So your gallbladder gets congested and causes gallbladder problems. So it can be a big deal from a functional perspective. Um, in a medical perspective, the only thing they really attribute H chloride to is an ulcer. So if you don't have an ulcer, they don't even check for it. And the testing that most you know medical um, insurance companies and things that are contracted with are more dealing with that pathology, more of a gross pathology, where a lot of the functional labs are looking more, a little more sensitive. So the lab that I was using is actually looking for the, the so anyway, back to my story is that, you know, at this point in time, you know, H. chloride can be really hard to get rid of. So I wasn't against going out to with some antibiotics just because it, you know, it had to get rid of it. So we went to this person's, this patient's doctor and said, Hey, you know, we found this H. chloride. We want to, you know, prescribe some antibiotics, you know, and this doctor decided that they wanted to run their own test. I'm like, all right, whatever. I mean, same thing, stool sample, looks like the same test. Well, their test comes back negative. So now we're like, well, now what? You know, like this test is negative. This test is positive. How do you know what's going on? So we actually used an herbal protocol that works great. It actually works better than the, than the antibiotics. And that's what I've been using ever since. But during that time, I did some research. Like, what's the difference between these two tests? Like, why was one positive and one was negative? So the test that this doctor ran was looking for the parasite in the stool. The test I ran was actually looking for like the DNA that's coming off the parasite that's kind of fluffing off into the stool and coming out. So the test I was looking at was much more sensitive than the test this doctor ran. And that's where sometimes you can say, well, I had that test. I don't have it, but I have all these symptoms. And you know, and that's where if you don't do the right testing, sometimes you can keep spinning your wheels. So what, if someone, give us some of the symptoms that someone would have if they had H. pylori and what was the name of the test that you used to treat that or to, to find out if they had it? So it's, um, I'm not even sure exactly now which test it, it was, but it's just an H. pylori test and there's different labs like Genova and, and, um, Diagnostics and some of these other companies that have a little, they're more functional labs, you know, so you look at more of a functional labs where a lot of the functional research we're using versus say, you know, a traditional lab that most your medical providers that might, might use. Um, but you know, what was the other, what was the other part of the question? What are, so what were oh, some symptoms? symptoms? Yeah. So, yeah. so for when you have H. pylori, you're going to have all the, uh, low stomach acid symptoms. So like when you watch TV and they say, oh, Take Prilosec or Pepsid if you're getting heartburn, reflux, um, you know, bloating. These are all signs of too much acid, which is actually wrong because the way the stomach works is if you have, if you, your stomach lining is designed, is designed to hold acid. So all the lining of your stomach has little cells that make acid. And then your stomach can hold that acid and break down, you know, heavy proteins and even pieces of bone and things like that and dissolve that stuff. Um, and that's what your stomach's designed to do. So when you have enough acid, then that signals your liver and your gallbladder to lose bile and the food breaks down quickly and it moves into your small intestine. When you don't have enough acid, then this, this food sits there. 
you get a little full, you get a little bloated feeling, you start burping and belching, or you may get like heartburn at night when you lay down and, and reflux. So you get this feeling of itchiness in your, in your throat because there's a little bit of irritation there. It's called silent reflux. Um, and then some people can have just poor digestion, but don't even have any reflux symptoms. You know, they're just, they're just slow motility. Like they, they get full and they don't feel like eating for a while or whatever, but they don't feel like reflux. Um, but that's, that's a foundational principle that a lot of people have. So when you go to your doctor, you know, they just put you on Prilosec, right? And then you read or any other proton pump inhibitor and you read the label and it says short-term you felt you sold it. Like you're not supposed to take this for long term because it can create all kinds of deficiencies because it blocks all your acid. So it stops the cells in your stomach from producing acid. Mm. So, um, and that's why when you do that, there's no acid to come back up. So, oh, thanks. I feel much better. Thanks, doc. You know, doing great. But now, now you read the label and it says short-term use only. So you go back to your doctor and say, well, this says I just like take this for like two or three weeks. What should I do? He's like, well, you can go off it if you want. But what happens? Comes right back, right? Because you never fixed it. So then they go back to your doctor and say, well, what do I do? Well, you know, some people have to be on it for long term. And I've had patients that are on, on these medications for over 15 years. And you wonder why they come in with all these chronic health problems. So that's a big one is just getting, getting people's stomach acid balanced and, um, and you got to get them off those, those, uh, acid blockers and get more acid. So let's talk about what gut, gut health has to do with our joints, because I know there's tons of studies that they've done out there that they have found a connection between an unhealthy gut bacteria and rheumatoid arthritis. And so people think, oh my gosh, what? What does rheumatoid arthritis have anything to do with unhealthy gut bacteria? But you would say you see that all the time, right? Exactly. Yeah. So just like we were saying, you know, if you have damage to the lining, that can result in something called a leaky gut, which allows undigested particles to get in the bloodstream. And that's one of the main drivers of, of immune system stress, which can eventually cause the immune system to start become autoimmune. So, so that, so that's like I said, it doesn't matter whether it's you know, rheumatoid or Hashimoto's or Graves or MS or any of the other autoimmune diseases. These are just side effects of these stressors to the immune system. One of the primary ones is imbalances in gut bacteria. Not to mention when the gut bacteria is out of balance, this can have an impact on even turning certain genes on and off. So, um, so the, the gut bacteria are very, very important. Um, there was a study done with mice and they found that um, mice that were thin had a certain type of bacteria in their gut that the overweight mice didn't have. So what they did is they took the bacteria from the thin mice and planted it into the overweight mice and guess what happened? Wow. They lost yeah. weight. Yeah. So that's how powerful these microbes can be. And a lot of these things, you know, through years of antibiotic use, you know, antibiotic use as a child, um, and a lot of things, even just, you know, having a, um, a conventional childbirth, vaginal childbirth versus a cesarean, when you go through the vaginal canal, you get a lot of these bacteria that help start your microbiome. So a lot, and you know, so nowadays there's a lot of things that just aren't, you know, the, the natural wisdom of natural things aren't really understood and, and, and took, taken into consideration. 
Um, but yeah, so the so gut bacteria. So go back to arthritis. Um, multiple things. Number one, rheumatoid is autoimmune. So if you have, you know, your immune system goes haywire, it decides to attack your weak link, your weak link comes to your joints, you start getting joint inflammation, joint pain. But also the joints are related to um, toxic buildup. So when you have a lot of these undigested particles get in the bloodstream, sometimes the toxins get accumulated and sometimes they'll start to accumulate in the joints. That's another theory of arthritis, different types of arthritis, whether it's you know psoriatic arthritis, which is again also linked to the gut. So with psoriasis, your gut lining becomes damaged. And again, some of these other undigested particles get into the bloodstream. And then your detoxification pathways become overburdened because your body's constantly trying to clear the toxins out of the blood. And when that system gets overburdened, then the body will start to use other detox pathways. So sometimes people will complain about bad breath because the lungs are another way of getting rid of these toxins. The skin is another way the body tries to get rid of these toxins. So a lot of times when you're having this issue, you start to develop skin um, lesions and things similar to psoriasis. Psoriasis also has an autoimmune component as well. Um, and but but that but it's kind of the same thing. Like the reason the autoimmune is there is because of the leaky gut, which is causing the stress to the immune system. Now the body's creating antibodies, and whether it's rheumatoid, it's a little different antibodies. Whether it's psoriasis, a little different antibodies. But all variations are the same thing. You guys, if you've been listening to my podcast, you know I've been talking about Masszymes, which is a digestive enzyme from Bioptimizers. And I want you to know that here's the thing. For me, having a digestive enzyme is a game changer because one of the biggest things that happens to me is I get really tired after my meal if I don't do it. And I have a problem with nutrient absorption. So if you could be eating the cleanest diet ever, but if you're not absorbing it, that's an issue. So this month, they're doing a really great special and you're going to get a free bottle of the digestive enzymes from Bioptimizers. And so all you have to do is pay a nominal shipping fee. That's it. No other strings attached. It's the best thing ever. So get your free bottle of digestive enzymes. It's called Masszymes. Go to masszymes.com slash wasteaway free and use the coupon code wasteaway10. That's it. So masszymes.com slash wasteaway free. Use the coupon wasteaway10. It's awesome. So one of the things, you know, how every other commercial is really it's about either like Humira or, uh, you know, one of these commercials that are talking about autoimmune. I mean, it, it just literally seems like every other commercial is about that. And one thing I was telling my husband is it seems like all of them say that one of the side effects is diarrhea. And I was I said to him, I said, I bet you anything that these pharmaceuticals, all they do is like just give you such bad diarrhea that it's just cleansing out your gut and it's just cleaning out all those toxins because, you know, I meet people all the time and they're like, even, you know, my grandmother, she's 102. And I said to her, I said, you know, how often are you going to the bathroom? And she's like, you know, 
recently it's been, you know, I used to go, you know, every day, sometimes twice a day. And now I'm, I'm, you know, sometimes only going every other day because she's moving less and less. And I'm like, yeah, that is not good. Like even just every other day, that's a major problem. So what, what do you suggest people do to make sure they're really going to the bathroom? Like my mom, she's in perfect health and she says she, she eats about twice a day, but she, every time she eats, she poops. Like it's literally like clockwork. Like she eats and poops, eats and poops. And I always say that's kind of one of her claims to fame. What do you suggest for people to really be regular? So, yeah, I think there's, uh, there's all kinds of talk about regular and what's regular, what's not regular. But generally what I try to recommend is at least kind of going once a day and having, you know, a normally formed stool, which is means it's not loose or falling apart. It's not floating or it's not just super hard and kind of pebbles somewhere in the, in the middle. And, and yet, it, you know, it's not exactly perfect. Because uh, sometimes people get kind of caught up in like, is it perfect or not? Um, and that's where kind of going like twice a day, maybe fine. I find that if you're going like after every meal, some places, some 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 sources will say that's that's good. Um, you know, I'm not so sure. I think sometimes that can be a sign that there's something you're eating is an irritant. You know, so a lot of times people say, oh, as long as I eat, blah blah blah, I go I go fine. But what they don't realize is what they're eating is an irritant. And that irritant is causing the body's trying to get rid of it. So, you know, when you're when your food doesn't go through the the um the colon and the small intestine in the right frequency, it can't absorb the nutrients that it needs. So going too frequently or having, you know, diarrhea to kind of clean the system out isn't necessarily ideal. Um so, but yeah, but, but, but how do you fix that? So, you know, and again, it just depends on, on what the issue is. So number one, let's look for food sensitivities. Number two, let's look at, you know, is there some kind of bug or parasite? Is there something that you may, may be doing that you don't know about? Um, and then working towards retraining the, the intestines. So another good story is that, you know, the intestines has like its own brain. So the nervous system, um, there was a study where they, where they found that um, it was like in the war somewhere and they had a bunch of people that were like uh, paraplegics and they had to have enemas every day to go to the bathroom. So every day they would you know, give them an enema about the same time and then they would go to the bathroom. And then there was something, something happened with the war where they couldn't get the enemas or something happened. And they found that that like a large percentage of people were still going at the exact same time every day because the nervous system in the intestine had, had created this habit. And a lot of people tell you like, yeah, I, I get up my clockwork. I get up, you know, I, I brush my teeth, I go to the bathroom or, or whatever, like every day at the same time or whatever. And that's part of what you want to do because when you start getting constipated, you're going like every other day, that almost becomes like your new normal. So you have to retrain that. And sometimes we'll use um, like magnesium or something to help kind of soften the stool up and get them going a little more frequently. And then once you get a, a rhythm down, 
then you can slowly start to back off of the magnesium and then you know they start going more normal and created a, a new habit yeah so yeah those are just some of the things we could do yeah and i think you know people don't realize like your nervous system your hormonal system your immune system can all affect like why you can't poop like how much caffeine you're using in a day how much sleep you're getting like there's more issues that people don't you know think about but i personally for me if i'm feeling at my remember i said like highs and lows right right feeling like a million bucks it is if i eat and then i poop i'm feeling like or twice a day like that would be if i'm eating twice a day then i'm pooping twice a day that's when i'm feeling my absolute best yeah I talk about like kind of what your poop look like every time i poop i always look at what the stool is so talk a little bit about what your poop should look like um as far as like how long it should be what color it should be and what are some some of the colors like if you say you know it's floating or different things like that like these are this is a problem well yeah so i think you know that's where I say, like, sometimes I don't get quite as dogmatic about that as some some practitioners might, because I think it really it depends on a lot of different factors. So if you're eating a lot of fiber and you're eating a lot of vegetables, say, you may have a, a larger volume of, of stool, where if you, say, go carnivore, um, you're not eating a lot of fiber and your, your stool is going to be smaller and it may be even maybe a little bit firmer. Right. Um, so it really depends on all of these different factors. But in general, you don't want your stool to be floating. So if your stool floats, that means you're not so digesting. What does that mean? You're not digesting fat. So there's fat, the undigested fats are getting into the stool. And that's where like low stomach acid, not signaling the liver and gallbladder. And the bile is a very big detoxifier. So the bile not only neutralizes the acid, so you know, your stomach makes acid and then the bile is a base that meets the acid in your small intestine and neutralizes it so that you don't get ulcers. And that's why when they look at H-pori, they associate with ulcers because you're not signaling the gallbladder. So therefore the acid that you do, the little bit of acid gets into the stomach and that's causing irritation. So when you make bile, it neutralizes it, but it also is a big detoxifier, which helps pull toxins out of your stool. If you don't have, if you've had your gallbladder removed, again, another one of my pet peeves is that, you know, we need, we need your gallbladder. So we need to learn how do you save your gallbladder? Um, not just take it out. Like, oh, you got pain here, let's take it out, you know? And then, oh, that wasn't it. Well, whatever, you don't need it anyway, you know? And then people don't have a gallbladder and they don't digest fats very well. They, so the fatty acid imbalances happen and they don't detox well. And that could be a challenge, you know, going forward. So, but, but yeah, so if your stool's floating, then it's too much, too much fat in the stool. So you don't want that. If it's super firm, then it's moving through this small intestine, either too, or the large intestine too slow. And, the, and so the longer it stays in your intestine, the water, the, the colon will pull water out of the stool and make it, make it too firm. Or you're dehydrated, right? So if you're not drinking enough, then you're going to have a firmer stool. That's why you want to learn how to hydrate and hydrate properly 
And that many times is all people need because a lot of people just dehydrate and don't realize it. Um, so I think, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect one way or the other, uh, just so, kind of somewhere in the middle. And depending on how much fiber you're eating and how much water you're drinking, um, I can tell you a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, that that's a good point. I, I heard that, there, that it's insane how many people are getting their gallbladders removed, like massive amounts. But basically, isn't it pain in your upper right abdomen? Like if you're yeah. having pain there and it yeah. it's just like a sharp pain there, that that would be where you're going. Yeah. And it's just, again, it's one of these things where, you know, in, in medicine, they're taught that your gallbladder isn't really that important and that you can be fine without it. Just like they, it's like you're fine without your thyroid. So they take the thyroid out a lot. Um, you know, you get a nodule or whatever, they just take the whole thing out and you get some pain in your, in your gallbladder. But, but a lot of times, you know, the, the dysfunction, I mean, the gallbladder does need to be removed sometimes, you know, so let's be real. I mean, if it's necrotic or it's really dysfunctional and it's damaged, then you'd have to remove it. But if we understood how important it was and we looked at it a little closer, we might see, okay, there's some dysfunction here. We need to fix this, you know, where again, our conventional uh, approach isn't really taught that. And they don't really, they wait until it gets so bad that they have to remove it. Um, so, but that's, that's a big one. And not a lot of times, it, you know, they'll just remove it because yeah, they think that could be the problem. I've had patients come in and say, yeah, I had this pain. And they told me my gallbladder went and had it removed. And then I still have the exact same pain, mm. you know? So, and when you, and you don't think it's that big a deal that you don't think twice about removing it, you know? So it's just part of the training. I think if I can get in with all the doctors in their school and teach them about the gallbladder, why it's important, why we need to save it, how to save it, you know, how to diagnose it early, um, that could be huge. So what would you say is kind of your favorite diet? Like if some people are having all of these, you know, psoriatic arthritis or rheumatology or thyroid issues, what have you seen in general kind of is the best diet that you recommend some of your patients on? For them to be in optimal health. So that's an also a really great question because, you know, one of the main principles I try to help teach people is that, you know, every diet has its place and, you know, what works for one person may not work for the other person. So there's no uh, rheumatoid diet. There's no MS diet. There's no Hashimoto's diet. And that's kind of how, you know, our conventional approach looks at things. So when you read the internet, you know, everybody says, oh, you, everybody should be a vegetarian or everybody should do keto or everybody should do this. But the way I look at it, these are just tools and that each person is a little bit unique and some people do better on certain things than others. Um, you know, some people have uh, an immune reaction to certain vegetables. And, you know, so people say, oh, well, vegetables are healthy. Maybe not for this person. Right. And some people have immune reactions to even certain meats like chicken or eggs. So again, you know, if you just if you're just saying, oh, everybody should be paleo or everybody should be vegetarian or everybody should be keto or everybody should do whatever. Um, I just don't look at it that way. So there's no one one diet that is the best for each person. And bigger to that point, I'd say is that, you know, we need to cycle our diets. So this is where, you know, people get so dogmatic, like they'll sometimes just changing things up is what we need. So if you're 
that your body is constantly eating a large amount of carbohydrates, then your body starts to get overburdened with carbohydrate processing. Your receptors start to get desensitized and then you start developing like insulin resistance and you start getting, um, you know, overweight and diabetes, these other problems. But if you go super low carb for a while, that kind of resets your receptors and then you can go back to eating carbs and you get the benefit. So, so there's benefits to eating carbs and there's benefits to, you know, being keto, but people's chain, they saw like keto and I felt great. And then they just said, that's it. That's what I need to do. Then they do that forever. And then after like a couple of months or however, they start feeling bad again, but they're like, it can't be my diet because, because I'm keto and it's the best, you know, or same thing with vegetarianism. Like, you know, you change it up and you, you do just nothing but fresh vegetables. You feel great. And then you get stuck on that for life. Then you end up with these other deficiencies and imbalances. So you need to cycle through different, different diets at different times. So I like, so I don't try to just, I don't try to put someone on one diet. I say, okay, we're going to do this for a short period of time to heal your gut or to get the use, you know, we need to, we need to get all the carbs out of your diet and we got to get some ketones flowing and reset your carbohydrate receptors so that you can process carbohydrates more effective and become more insulin sensitive. And then when you start to introduce carbs back in, you get a, you get a lot of benefits from the carbs where before they were actually a problem. Where if you stay keto for too long, then that starts to become a problem. You got to get out of keto, get out of ketogenesis, and get into eating carb burning to get that fixed. So one of the things that I've done myself is I've taken some of those different, you know, food allergy tests. Yeah. And I feel like they always come back different. Like they literally like this one comes because I've done so many of them and I'm like, I just don't believe them. So what is your opinion on that? Because it's like, this one says this, then you take another one and then it says this, and then you take another one and it says this, and it's just like, you don't know what to believe. And that's why I say that, you know, I, there's certain, only certain labs that I will use. And I don't, I don't really like most of the food sensitivity tests that are out there, especially blood that are blood-based. Because um, I find the same thing and it's just not good information. It doesn't tell you anything, you know, and I think it just depends on, you know, if you have damage to your gut lining and you take this test and depending on what you've eaten over the last week or two, that may be what shows up. Sure. Sure. That you change your diet around and then you take it again, you get something different. So I'm not really sure how helpful that is. So what, so what is your, suge- is, you, is your suggestion to do more of a Let's cut a more of an elimination diet, kind of cut this and see how you feel. Well, number one, I think that the testing that require that looks at the mucous membranes, it to me is more accurate. And it's also telling us, okay, these are like the foundational things that are really irritating your gut lining and causing problems. And then we'll do um, you know, like a, a elimination diet with that information. So is that with stool instead of blood work? Is yes. That yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's looking at the stool, not looking at the blood. So and you would just take stool. a stool sample and then they say, looking at this stool sample, this is the foods that are showing that it's causing inflammation. Yeah, these are the foods that your body is making antibodies to in the mucous membranes. Mm. Yeah, because again, that's where it starts. And then 
if that continues, then other foods get into the bloodstream. So it's kind of like, you know, what I call a downstream principle. You know, if you have a dirty stream, you can create a fancy filter to fix to clean the water. But if you go upstream and stop dumping the dirt or water, they don't worry about the filter. You know what I mean? So we want to go as upstream as far as we can and get to the root. And then that may have an impact on everything going forward. Well, I know that you have treated thousands of patients, and there's probably a good chance that you've treated someone with your exact condition. So if you are liking what Dr. Scott is saying, then he is helping people left and right. And with the functional approach, instead of just throwing you on some kind of pharmaceutical, which I'm totally against. So Dr. Mark Scott, tell everyone where they can find you and where they can follow you. Yeah. So a um, good place to go is to our website. So it's totalhealthcenterbb.com. And once you go on our website, there's tons of information and lots of links. And you can go to my YouTube sites and Vimeo page and all the other stuff navigating through that website. And that's a good place to start to find out a little bit of what I'm doing. And then if you're interested in learning more, um, you can request a free consultation. And I again, I do a lot of this stuff over Zoom and through phone calls, and um, it works really well, you know, virtually, like we're doing today, you know, talk. Yeah, just doing it virtually. Yep. Well, you are a blessing in my life, and I'm just grateful for you and your friendship. Thanks so much for being with us, and you guys stay tuned. We've got another episode coming up in just a few. Bye-bye for now. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, it would mean the world to us for you to leave a review on iTunes to get this podcast out to others that may have the same questions that you do. And as always, if you have a question that you want answered, email those to questions at chantelrayway.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.